The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Tell Tales, a podcast about forensic pathology related topics. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we are both pathology residents who are going into forensic pathology. And it is very early. <laughs> um, <laughs> normally we record these in the afternoon, but because our schedules are ridiculous, we're recording it at like 8 a.m. So apologize for any brain farts. Yeah. <laughs> also, no drinks this time. Also, no drinks this time. No Irish coffee for either of us. Cole is very active as well, so. Beware of kitty mukes or us running to save something from Cole trying to destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much as we're leaving, like, the hot summer month, or as Nicole calls it, heaven, and we're going into the nice, cool, <laughs> amazingness of fall, which Nicole considers the Arctic, we <laughs> figured we would talk about heat and cold deaths a little bit, so exposure deaths. Um, and according to the CDC, there are about 2,000 U.S. residents that die each year from weather-related causes of death. Uh, and this is probably an underestimate, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Pre-existing health conditions can be exacerbated by the weather, and some of those might be classified as being caused by those underlying conditions versus the weather. And that's because autopsy is very bad at distinguishing exposure deaths. Like, there are no specific signs and stuff like that that say, all right, this was definitely a hypothermia case, or this is definitely a hyperthermia case. There isn't, unfortunately, anything that tells you exactly that these deaths were caused by this, besides often circumstantial stuff that we'll talk about. Yeah. And of those 2,000 deaths, about 31% of the deaths are attributed to excessive natural heat. 63% are attributed to excessive natural cold, so hypothermia. And the remaining 6% were attributed to flood, storms, or lightning. Mm, okay. Yeah. I wonder if those percentages are going to change with global warming. Yeah, that's one of the things that the CDC talked about. The frequency and intensity of all types of extreme weather events have been increasing and are expected to continue increasing okay. um, as a result of changing weather patterns. Oh. So they think that all of those types of deaths are going to increase in percentage. That was totally not set up, but that was actually Nicole's next bullet point as I'm looking over the computer. (laughs) You're welcome for teaming you up for that one. (laughs) Psychic or something over here. Yes, I wish. So to start off with like a baseline, everybody hears of this normal body temperature of 98.6 Fahrenheit or 37 Celsius orally. Rectally, that's a little bit higher, but you know, everybody hears this perfect temperature of 98.6. Now that is a normal body temperature, but that isn't the normal body temperature. Humans range all over the place, depending on age, depending on time of day, if you're exercising, what environment you're in. Elderly people and newborns are generally about a degree Celsius higher. So they say that the normal range is actually 97 to 99. So if you're one of those people say, oh, I always run hot, that's totally normal. That's just (laughs) within the range of normal. And then for doctors, technically when we say fever, that's over 101.4 Fahrenheit. That's our cutoff point for saying 
when somebody has a fever. So if you're at 101, you're not actually feverish. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. Sorry. And body temperature depends on a balance between heat production and heat loss. Hypothermia is when your heat loss is greater than your heat gain or production, and hyperthermia is caused by your heat gain being higher than your heat loss. Exactly. Life is all about balance. (laughs) You gain heat in two ways. One is by your body producing it, so metabolism, and the other is by the environment, by soaking up the sun. And you lose heat through a variety of different processes. There's direct heat loss through conduction. We radiate heat through infrared rays. Uh, Evaporation is the biggest mechanism for heat loss. So that can be water vaporizing in the form of sweat, but you also have these things called insensible losses. So when you breathe, you also lose a bunch of water. You know, that's why the the air you breathe out is all vaporized. And then you can also lose it through convection. So that is from air currents. So that's why it feels colder when the wind is blowing. And interestingly, something like conduction can be through either a surface or through the air. So if you're camping and you're out in the woods and you're standing up, you can feel cool. But if then you lie down on the cold ground, you feel really cold because the ground is going to pull heat out of you faster than the air. And that's really important when we get into hypothermia later. The ability of something to conduct heat. The air isn't particularly good at it, but the ground is. And then even convection is technically part of conduction. Like you lose a little bit of heat to the air directly around your body. And if you don't move and the air's not moving you kind of have this little warm little blanket (laughs) of air directly around you. But then if the air starts moving, that little warm area of air is now pushed away and you have cold air that comes in and then you lose more heat to that. So that's why moving air is significantly colder, feels significantly colder than stagnant air. On the same extent, it helps reduce you being too hot, hyperthermia. It also can lead you to being overly cold or hypothermia. The other things that factor into you losing heat, obviously the outside temperature, but the outside humidity too. So if it's very humid out, Nicole mentioned sweating. Sweating works because you evaporate that sweat off of your skin. And if it's really humid out, you're not going to evaporate that sweat. So you're not going to be able to lose heat the way that you would want to. And again, within that realm, convection, so that moving air helps keep you cooler. Also, clothing is fantastic. (laughs) I found an interesting figure on this. It decreases heat loss from the body to half that of a nude body. So just having cold, like, doubles your potential to retain heat. Oh, wait, what? What? Having clothes on? Yes. Huh. Interesting. Like, that little extra layer is pretty helpful. And, of course, the material dependent. If it's cotton and it gets wet... You're going to be really cold. Um, first of all, like a wicking material, you won't be as cold. If it's a down jacket, you're going to be warmer. Exactly, yeah. And then people weren't evolved necessarily with clothing. So our bodies are actually pretty good at regulating our temperature. And it said in dry air, of course, dry air is very important for this, between 60 and 130 degrees Fahrenheit, a nude body can regulate their temperature indefinitely. 130. Yes. So 60 to 130. Your body can regulate your temperature indefinitely. Of course, this is dry air. This is assuming you have food to keep yourself energized for those regulatory mechanisms. but Water to keep yourself hydrated. Water to keep yourself hydrated. <laughs> but your body is, does its job really well. Evolution did a great job in making us like a fine-tuned machine besides the varying issues that everybody has. But... 
it does a pretty good job. <laughs> it was crazy because like 60 degrees, because if you think about it both ways, right? Our body temperature baseline is 98.6. So that's like 30 degrees down and 30 degrees up. Yeah, that's very impressive. Yeah. Oh, good job, body. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Speaking of body, body habitus also. Yes. Has a big role in heat loss, heat retention. Yeah. And some of it is the actual layer of like insulation. And we'll get into a little bit later, but it hurts with certain things like hyperthermia and that your body can't Mm -hmm. get heat away from you fast enough. Yes. So hyperthermia, colloquially known as heat stroke. So this is when, obviously, your body can't make you cooler. Yeah. (laughs) And this is defined as 105 plus rectally. You usually symptomatically have hot, dry skin and central nervous system dysfunction. So essentially, you get a little altered and your your brain isn't functioning as well as it could. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about is signs and symptoms of live people. Because a lot of what Wait, we're... dead people don't have signs and symptoms? They have signs. <laughs> they don't have symptoms. But with the autopsy, as I alluded to earlier, there's not a lot of specific things that point to it. So we kind of go back and get a lot of history around this. So the clinical history is very important in all cases, but especially in these. On that factor of often it's hot and dry skin, nothing is perfect in medicine. Sometimes people do present with cool and damp skin from like kind of a adrenaline release so like you're working out really hard you're getting really hot and all of a sudden from like you're it's really really hot outside but all of a sudden you're just like really cold you feel really cold that could be a sign of heat stroke and like you're cool and damp your body's no longer regulating the way that it should get yourself checked out get some water so some risk factors for developing hyperthermia are of course being in a high environmental temperature, like that's kind of key. (laughs) Um, Some other things are physical exertion. So if you are out in that high environmental temperature and you're working out, then that's going to increase your body temperature and put you at risk for hyperthermia. A lot of heat-related illness um, and death can be seen in different settings. So one of those is like young individuals who are going undergoing extreme exertion. So military recruits um, have presented with heat-related illness. Sports. Yes, yeah, sports. Good for you in some ways, bad for you in others. <laughs> yeah, no. In rugby, they usually, it's an 80-minute game at halftime. 40 minutes, you get a 10-minute halftime. And if it's over a certain temperature, there's these regulations now where you get a water break at every 20 minutes. Oh, really? And that's to reduce because people were getting heat stroke and getting oh. really sick. So like, after tw- if it's hot enough, yeah. it's not all the time for sure. But at 20 minutes, you'll break. I don't remember how long the break is. And everybody gets water oh, to try to reduce the risk of some so of these good. things. That is, yeah. That's really nice. So, And I'm sure that there are other sports that do it. Like football yeah. is a little different because you're not constantly playing. You get breaks throughout. Like you do a play, that's you true. stop, you switch offense to defense. You don't really do that in something like rugby or soccer. But I'm assuming soccer also has similar type of things. Yeah. Although in football, you do have all the extra padding. Like, I wonder how much more insulation that is compared to... Yes, like, even with you, all you have the padding breaks. on top, but, like, so your arms and stuff is exposed. And you can, like, lift up your shirt and, like... You can do what? You can lift up your shirt <laughs> and expose those abs and pull yourself down. So And take off your helmet. I feel like the biggest one is your, your head. Obviously, it gets off a lot of heat. Right. So you take off your helmet, and you're going to dissipate a lot of heat that way. Oh. Or you put... If you see football players on the side of the field, they have, like, the cool towels around oh, their yeah, necks. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of that stuff... we. So similar stuff in rugby, like in a really hot game, we'll often have a giant tub of ice 
And if there's a break, people will come around and just like slap a towel around your neck. And it's super, super cold, but it feels great. <laughs> and it's very necessary to help you regulate your heat. So high environmental temperatures, physical exertion, mentioned this earlier, but obesity. So fat yes. is an insulator. So the bigger your body habit is, the more at risk you are for hyper hyperthermia. So specifically with obese people, the reason that it does make them more susceptible is because obviously they're going to have less heat loss, but they're going to have an increased cardiac demand because any extra tissue you have has more blood that needs to flow through it. So you're going to have to have more blood to flow through that extra fat. So your heart actually has a higher load on it. And on top of that, fat is really good at metabolizing more heat. So not only are you not losing more, you're also making more heat. So it kind of compounds on this problem that's already there. So it's a really a big risk factor. Yeah. And then Jordan mentioned this earlier, but extremes of age. So elderly people and newborns have a harder time thermoregulating their body because in the extreme of age for the elderly, part of it is that they have a lot of underlying medical conditions and certain underlying medical conditions put you more at risk for hyperthermia. So having cardiovascular disease or certain neurologic conditions. Um, so that's more likely to be present in elderly people. And also certain types of prescription drugs make it more difficult for your body to regulate its temperature. And the older you are, the more likely you are to be on a bunch of different yes. medications. And a lot of the drugs actually are various classes of antidepressants. The way that they interact with your system can sometimes interfere with the temperature regulating systems. Mm -hmm. And the only other one that I had on that was alcoholism. If you drink a lot, your body... As we all know, and this will come up in hypothermia as yeah. well, <laughs> when you drink, you feel warmer. Why do you feel warmer? Because your vasculature and your skin is dilating. And when it just is all dilating, your body can't regulate itself the way it should. And you might pass out in the heat, in the sun, and not be able to get yourself in shade. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that go along with this, but alcoholism is going to be a factor in both of these cases, both of these extremes. There are also certain illegal drugs. I mentioned prescription drugs, oh. but there are also illegal drugs that can increase your risk of hyperthermia because the way that they work makes you your metabolism kind of speed up, so you have excess heat production. And it affects your heart. And mm -hmm. with both of these, the way that the temperature extremes affect your heart is really important. We'll probably go into a little bit more with hypothermia than hyperthermia specifically, but more strain on your heart leads to you not being able to compensate as well. So there are a couple of primary settings that we see this in. The first, actually, the first two of these Nicole has already talked about. One is young people exposed to high temperatures during extreme exertion. So this is military players, sports people. In the heat, your body isn't going to be able to get rid of all that heat if you're making a lot of it by working out. The second is prolonged heat waves. So these are usually in older people, and it's actually not in the first couple of days. First couple of days their bodies can regulate a little bit. But then after about a week, their bodies kind of shut down. And often you find people have died at the you know week plus of these prolonged heat waves. And this is often in people with lower socioeconomic groups because they can't afford air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, people with pre-existing heart conditions who are not able to compensate as well. Also, you hear on the news about children left in cars. I didn't write down the exact numbers, but they've done a lot of studies on how long it takes 
for a car to get hot and how hot a car can get if left in the direct sun. And they need to be like 130 degrees in the direct sun. It gets really, really hot. And again, kids aren't as good at regulating. So it's very, very unsafe. And it doesn't matter if you crack the window. So don't crack the window and say they're fine because the window's cracked because that doesn't actually help dissipate the heat that well. Yeah. Take your kids into Safeway with you. Please, they'll be okay. <laughs> also, same with your dogs. We love animals. Please, please, please don't leave your dogs in a hot car. I love the pictures where there's like a sign on the door on like the car being like, the car is running, the AC is on, the dog is fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've never great. seen that. <laughs> oh, there's some great pictures on the internet. There's one in like somebody's Tesla where they had like on the Tesla screen written yeah. out, the dog is fine. It's this temperature in the car. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it's... Hi, Kitty. Speaking of that, hi. Well, that's good because you definitely don't want people to bust your windows in to rescue your dog if exactly. your dog is... And it's one of those things, it's totally like, fine. thank you for thinking of my dog, but I promise they are in a... I was thinking of They are more comfortable than you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and the other one that was on that we already talked about is obese individuals are significantly more susceptible to this. So we've talked a lot about the different risk factors, and one of the ones that we keep harping on is that people with underlying cardiovascular disease are at higher risk for hyperthermia, and that's because the mechanism of death in hyperthermia has to do with increased workload being put on the heart. So your body, trying to compensate for the heat, does something called vasodilation, so your vessels get bigger so that it's increasing the amount of blood that's getting to the skin surface to try to get more of the heat to leave your body. But when that happens, that means there's more blood volume being returned to your heart. And that means that your heart is having to work harder and cardiac failure can occur. So if somebody already has some sort of cardiovascular disease and that extra strain is being put on their heart, it's going to disrupt their balance, which we said was very important. Um, And that's what's going to lead to death in these cases. And that is a really good explanation of why autopsy findings are not specific. So it's because of this high output cardiac failure. High output cardiac failure happens in more than just hyperthermia. Yeah. So it's one of those things you look for some of the signs and symptoms of cardiac failure, but in terms of the end mechanism of death, it's similar to other end mechanisms. What's going to distinguish it at autopsy, if the person survives in this state for an extended period of time, are some of the other things that are associated with you being very hot for a very long time. So people that are able to survive more than 24 hours and they have some of these other signs and that includes what's called lobular pneumonia so pneumonia is a lung infection and your lung has five lobes and so if you're one when we look at the lungs at autopsy if one lobe is affected it's called lobular pneumonia and that is something that is associated with this also a specific kidney injury called acute tubular necrosis. All you need to know is when we look at it under the microscope, we can see that a specific part of the kidney has died, often due to not having enough water. Adrenals, which are the little glands that sit on top of your kidneys, we can see bleeding in them. Your liver, it can, some parts of it can start to die. And a certain part in your heart, you can start to see some changes. So you can see bleeding in what's called the subendocardium, so underneath the inside part of your heart, and then you can see some degeneration of the heart muscle. But this is often the diagnosis and the final cause of death is often based on clinical history or circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So 
it's the end of a long heat wave. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and then you can see some of these other signs, but it's often what you see at the scene and what's happening in your local weather reports. Yeah. One thing that can help is a rectal temperature if you know the time of death. So if it's 60 degrees out and the person's temperature is 105 rectally, it could have something to do with a hyperthermia situation. If it's 105 degrees out and the person's 105 degrees rectally, <laughs> it's probably, and it, you don't know like when they died, they could have just gotten themselves up to the environmental temperature. Right. So we talked about that when we were talking about our time of death with Algor mortis, which is technically cooling, but it's really just going to the environmental temperature. Yep. So if the environmental temperature is hot, the body will get hotter. And then the other reason, there are other reasons that people can get hyperthermia. So in the extent of great ways to cover up a murder. um, (laughs) Because that's what we want to be promoting. (laughs) Or we want to be promoting how to find it and like dig it out. That's true. Um, One of the reasons for hyperthermia is an aspirin overdose, a salicylate overdose. So tox levels are important, especially if you see something on scene that's making you think that. CNS bleeding, so bleeding, brain bleeding, can cause an increase in temperature because your hypothalamus, which is a part of your brain that helps regulate temperature, may be affected by extra pressure from brain bleeding, or it might be bleeding itself. So there's a lot of other things that could cause increased temperatures as well. One of which that I found interesting being malignant hyperthermia, Yeah, which is like before... I was wondering after... if you were going to bring that up because it's not... A... It's not due to environmental temperatures. But yeah. yeah. It's either due to drugs or during and after anesthesia. Essentially, your body just fails at regulating temperatures due to all the drugs that your body has been given because of the procedure. And it's an inherited condition. Yes. So yes. you don't have or you do have certain enzymes that are causing your body to develop this when you're exposed to those different drugs. And this is the thing that's associated with redheads. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. So, like, if you're a redhead and have anesthesia, it's something that could be, that could happen to you. Because it's very specific to, I can't remember what gene it is, but there's something that's associated with the redhead gene. All the Weasleys need to get tested. Hopefully they just never have to have surgery. Because if you don't have to have surgery, you're not going to have to worry about it. That's true. And they're magic. Do they do surgery in the wizard world? I'd imagine they wouldn't need to, right? Well, I would imagine that there's certain things, like, I'm trying to think of, like, what we would need surgery for. Infections and trauma, right? Trauma. So trauma's interesting, because, like, can you just say heal thyself, you know, whatever spell? A pisky? Yeah, but, like, that's for little stuff. But then, like, you know, well, like, but... when, when Draco got septum separate and Snape did the whole, like... right. And um, the skin Gilderoy Lockhart was trying to fix his arm, so there must be a spell for yeah. broken bones. Yes, yeah, so and then there's a, spell a for potion bone. to grow the bones. Yeah. So, but I would imagine if there's like a big internal bleed due to a break, you could probably heal that with like a right. So. I'm sure that there are ways to do it without surgery. Yeah, but I don't know, like an appendix. Can you just like disappear the appendix? Appendix disruptio. <laughs> <laughs> We're leaving that in. <laughs> Too um, early. It's, it's too so early. early. It's not even that early. <laughs> okay. So now that we've uh, covered Nicole's perfect state of being way too hot, we're going to go into my perfect state of being way too cold. 
<laughs> so hypothermia is when your body temperature gets below 95 Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius. And the risk factors for developing hypothermia <laughs> include low environmental temperature, shocker, <laughs> and same for hyperthermia, <laughs> alcoholism is a risk factor. And part of that are the risky behaviors that Jordan mentioned earlier. So you're drinking a lot, you collapse outside in the snow, you don't get yourself to a warm place, more likely to develop hypothermia. So alcohol causes vasodilation, which is why you get that warm feeling, um, that warm flush when you're drinking. And so that is causing you to lose heat, but makes you feel warm. So people who are drinking will sometimes go out in colder temperatures, not realizing how cold it is. And then that also puts them at risk for developing hypothermia. And then I had being an outdoor person puts you at risk for hypothermia. I find it interesting <laughs> you call these risk factors because I just think of these as like situations in which you might be get hypothermia. I don't I guess I don't consider it a risk factor. Yeah. But like it's just situations in which I mean kind of hypothermia might develop. I think of more as risk factors as like infants well, yeah. are very susceptible to heat because they have a high surface area, less fat, less vasomotor reflexes. Elderly people, it's a risk factor because their homes aren't well heated plus disease and malnutrition. Like those are the risk factors associated with this. And then yeah, and I guess then, I lumped the risk factors and settings together because extremes of age was the next one. Yeah, because yeah, I, I guess yeah, I distinguished those because I don't I don't consider the fact that I like to ski a risk factor. Oh, I consider that a risk factor. No, it's stay I, inside the cabin and eat your no, snowman chocolate. No, snowman chocolate, <laughs> hot chocolate, dirty snowman, dirty snowman, dirty snowman. I was like, what's the name of that? That is a hot chocolate in which you put a shot of something in it. Dirty I think snowman. technically it's vodka for dirty snowman, but there are other formulations for different things oh this is just what one resort has i'm sure every place has their own cocktails so yeah you have risk factors like you're younger you're old and then you have situational and alcoholism and then you have situational things like you like to ski or you hike and you could get caught out in the cold or immersion in cold Mm -hmm. water so maybe you're diving or maybe you fall in the river those are situational things that are associated with hypothermia. Yep. And we mentioned conduction as a way to gain and lose heat. So in the air, the conduction is pretty low. Like you're not going to, you lose heat to the air for sure, but you don't lose that much. When you're lying on the ground, you lose heat faster. Water conducts temperature 20 to 25 times faster than air. So being in cold water is one of the fastest ways to get you cool. Which of note, if you are hyperthermic, getting in a, like, one of the th- ways you treat them is packing them with ice. Mm. So similarly with water, if you can submerge them in some kind of, like, a cool water bath, you can dissipate some of that heat pretty quickly. Although don't just throw them in a little lake because no. they have CNS dysfunction. So they're yeah. probably confused and not able to... If you can lay them in like one foot of water and hold their head (laughs) above water, perfect. Yeah. (laughs) But don't, yeah, don't throw the waffles out of your boat. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe just dangle one leg in the water. Yeah. Like when you're too hot in bed and you put one leg out from under the bed. Just just one one foot. (laughs) That'll regulate your entire body temperature. Yeah. So how it works. (laughs) It like makes you, it's the perfect thing. How do you protect yourself from being cold naturally? Shivering is the one you often think of. It does a surprisingly good job of... It pretty much makes you produce more heat. 
So it does a pretty good job warming it back up. Chemical thermogenesis is something, there's something that babies have called brown fat. And this is a specific type of fat that even looks different under the microscope to us. It's pretty cool looking. Yeah. It produces a lot of heat really effectively. It's pretty cool. And then the only natural, other natural one I had was obese people. Subcutaneous fat also helps keep in heat. Also, it produces more heat. So it's helpful. So in heavier people, they're better. Women has have more fat than men in general. So they're somewhat more protected from hypothermia than men at baseline. One of the only positives of having the extra X? <laughs> a little extra padding. It's fine. <laughs> Something that I never have a problem with. So I'm never too cold. Uh, so what happens as we get colder? We're going to kind of dive below the 95 because that's the technical term for hypothermia. But if you're hypothermic, you won't necessarily die. So once your body hits 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really, really cold, or 32 degrees Celsius, you start to have cerebral impairment. So that's when you get analgesia. So you're not as, you're not really in pain. Your consciousness starts to dip a little bit and you're not thinking straight. You can get hallucinations. So you're seeing things like, oh, hi, grandma, or whatever. (laughs) Um, Your reflexes start to slow and then you stop shivering. And if you stop shivering, that's really bad. Once you go below 85 degrees Fahrenheit, the hypothalamus, that regulatory part of your brain, just stops working. And your body can no longer regulate temperature. Around there, around 86, you can get what's called atrial fibrillation, which is where your heart isn't pumping together in the right way. So your atria, which are the two little parts on top, kind of just randomly move around like the muscles are just randomly firing so you don't get an effective heartbeat anymore some of the electrical activity in your heart starts to get messed up in specific ways and then even colder 82 to 77 is when ventricular fibrillation occurs and ventricular fibrillation are the two big parts of your heart when those just start randomly firing you're definitely not getting a good pump of your heart out into your body and so you're not circulating your blood anymore and you're not getting oxygen and then you can die you can get what's called hemoconcentration so that's when your blood is thicker than it should be and that happens because plasma so the liquid part of your blood just kind of starts seeping out of your vessels into the space around your vessels which isn't great because if your blood is thicker it's not going to push through your veins as well you can have higher levels of sugar in your system and as Nicole mentioned with alcohol you start to have these peripheral dilation which makes the hypothermia even worse and you lose more heat and then the last two things that are associated clinically with hypothermia are what's called paradoxical undressing so in about 20 to 50 percent of the cases people will as they're getting colder actually start taking off their clothing which makes no sense. But if you go back to the hallucinations and the decreased consciousness, your brain really isn't working particularly well. And interestingly with this, Cold Mountain Rescue are pretty used to this. Like they'll, not that it happens all that often, but they're trained to see it. Mm. But in cities, when they see people that in the cold lying naked in the middle of the street, they might think that it's a sexual assault or something like that and not paradoxical undressing. So it's something to keep in mind. If it's really cold, this might be it. And the last one is called terminal burrowing. So this is when you're about to die. You kind of find somewhere 
that you feel like a tighter space that's maybe covered and you feel more comfortable. It's kind of a the last defense mechanism that your body has, which is why sometimes it's hard to find people yeah. in this kind of situation because they find a comfy place that is not obvious and you cannot find them. It's also called hide and die syndrome, according to some of the resources yeah. I found. But When I was an EMT, they always trained us, you're not dead till you're warm and dead. So if somebody falls in a river and they've gone with the current, but it's very, very cold and say their body temperature is 85 degrees Fahrenheit, you don't stop doing CPR. You don't stop working on them until they are back at body temperature because there have been situations when somebody's cold and their heart maybe hasn't been going for a while, but because they're cold, kind of all the metabolism shuts down and it's almost protective, like we do protective cooling mm-hmm. for people that are having heart attacks. So sometimes like falling in a river can actually protect you if you're having a cardiac event. So you don't stop working on them until they're ba- brought back up to normal body temperature. And as with hyperthermia, autopsy findings aren't super specific for hypothermia. It's kind of a diagnosis that you make with integration of the scene findings. Um, maybe if there are any eyewitness statements, what other environmental factors that you can find. And then there's some what are called characteristic features that you can see on autopsy. So if the liver mortis is bright red, um, so liver mortis we mentioned in the postmortem changes episode, it's that settling of the blood in the dependent areas of the body. And usually it's this purplish reddish color but it can be bright red in different causes of death so hypothermia is one of them where it can be this bright red color Um, you can also see prominent red brown discoloration of the skin over the knees and elbows you can see what's called hemorrhagic pancreatitis so your pancreas can get acutely inflamed and then also bleed you can see multiple superficial evenly dispersed dark ulcerations within the stomach. And these are something called Wisniewski ulcers. And it looks kind of like leopard print if you see pictures of it. And I'll try to post pictures of it on one of our social media platforms. But yeah, that's like the one on board examinations that they'll show you and they'll be like, how did this person die? These findings are kind of rare to see on autopsy. So really it's, if a body was found hiding somewhere they're partially undressed it's super cold outside then you're going to be thinking that it's a hypothermia death and as jordan mentioned the mechanism of death in this case is cardiac arrhythmia which is not something we're going to see on autopsy so that's why we look for all of these other findings that could point us in the right direction as with any good death investigation the autopsy is a small part of it you really do have to take everything in And this is why, going back to the Jeffrey Epstein case, it wasn't just the fact that the hyoid was fractured. It was everything that went into it. And you can't just take this one thing and say, he was murdered. You do have to take it all in. Again, maybe he was. I don't know. But (laughs) you can't take one thing out of context. So we each brought a story again. So I have not a real case. When I was looking through hypothermia... There was this one short story that Hans Christian Andersen wrote in 1895, in December of 1895, that kind of did a great job with tying a lot of this in. So I wanted to bring it up and it's it's a short story, so it's easy enough to read. And this is a translation of that, obviously, because I'm not going to attempt to read language that's not English and 
Yeah, no. What? I know. Weird. So, it was so terribly cold. Snow was falling, and it was almost dark. Evening came on, the last evening of the year. In the cold and gloom, a poor little girl, bareheaded and barefoot, was walking through the streets. Of course, when she left her house, she had slippers on. But what good had they been? They were very big slippers, way too big for her, for they belonged to her mother. The little girl had lost them running across the road, where two carriages had rattled by terribly fast. One slipper she'd not been able to find again, and a boy ran off with the other, saying he could use it very well as a cradle some day when he had children of his own. And so the little girl walked on, her naked feet, which were quite red and blue with the cold. In an old apron she carried several packages of matches, and she held a box of them in her hand. No one had bought any from her all day long, and no one had given her a cent. Shivering with cold and hunger, she crept along, a picture of misery. Poor little girl. The snowflakes fell on her long, fair hair, which hung in pretty curls over her neck. In all the windows, lights were shining, and there was a wonderful smell of roast goose, for it was New Year's Eve. Yes, she thought of that. In a corner formed by two houses, one of which projected further out into the street than the other, she sat down and drew up her little feet under her. She was getting colder and colder, but did not dare go home, for she had sold no matches, nor earned a single cent, and her father would surely beat her. Besides, it was cold at home, for they had nothing over them but a roof through which the wind whistled, even though the biggest cracks had been stuffed with straw and rags. Her hands were almost dead with cold. Oh, how much one little match might warm her, if she could only take one from the box and rub it against a wall and warm her hands. She drew one out. Wretch! How it sputtered and burned. It made a warm, bright flame, like a little candle, and she held her hands over it. But it gave a strange light. It really seemed to the little girl as if she were sitting before a great iron stove with shining brass knobs and a brass cover. How wonderfully the fire burned. How comfortable it was. The youngster stretched out her feet to warm them too. Then the little flame went out. The stove vanished, and she had only the remains of the burnt match in her hand. She struck another match against the wall. It burned brightly, and when the light fell upon the wall, it became transparent, like a thin veil, and she could see through it into a room. On the table, a snow-white cloth was spread, and on it stood a shining dinner service. The roast goose steamed gloriously, stuffed with apples and prunes, and what was still better, the goose jumped down from the dish and waddled along the floor with a knife and fork in its breast, right over to the little girl. Then the match went out, and she could only see the thick, cold wall. She lighted another match, and she was sitting under the most beautiful Christmas tree. It was much larger and much more beautiful than the one she had seen last Christmas through the glass door at the rich merchant's house. Thousands of candles burned on the green branches, and colored pictures like those in print shops looked down on her. The little girl reached both her hands towards them. Then the match went out. But the Christmas lights mounted higher. She saw them now, brightest stars in the sky. One of them fell down, forming a long line of fire. Now someone is dying, thought the little girl, for her old grandmother, the only person who had loved her and who was now dead, had told her that when a star fell down, a soul went up to God. She rubbed another match against the wall. It became bright again, and in the glow, the old grandmother stood clear and shining, kind and lovely. Grandmother, cried the girl, oh, take me with you. I know you will disappear when the match is burned out. You will vanish like the warm stove, the wonderful roast goose, in the big, beautiful Christmas tree. She quickly struck the whole bundle of matches, for she wished to keep her grandmother with her, and the matches burned with such a glow that it became brighter than daylight. Grandmother had never been so grand and beautiful. She took the little girl in her arms, and both of them flew in brightness and joy above the earth, very, very high, and up there was neither cold nor hunger nor fear. They were with God. But in the corner, leaning against the wall, sat the little girl with red cheeks and smiling mouth, frozen to death on the last evening of the cold year. The New Year's sun rose upon a little pathetic figure. 
The child sat there, stiff and cold, holding the matches, of which one bundle was almost burned. She wanted to warm herself, the people said. No one imagined what beautiful things she had seen and how happily she had gone with her old grandmother into the bright new year. And this has been adapted many times to many things, but I think it did a really good job highlighting some of the things that we look for around death. So one mentioned how she lost her shoes and then she had a lot of frostbite mm. on her feet, right? They were red and blue. So frostbite on the hands, feet, knees, and elbows is definitely one of the things you look for at autopsies that is that is associated with hypothermia. The terminal burrowing, she found that little corner between the two houses and tucked herself in there. Hallucinations are really common. So she saw the dinner, the stove, she saw the goose, she saw the Christmas tree, she saw her grandmother. Is that why you mentioned grandmother earlier? Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, she didn't feel cold at the end. So that's the analgesia sitting in. So I don't think he meant to do this as the perfect setup yeah. <laughs> for hypothermia, but it was actually perfect of like when people die of hypothermia, usually from, again, not that we've been able to talk to anybody that has died of hypothermia, but a lot of the data that's been collected seems to say that you don't die cold. You don't die unhappy. You're hallucinating and you have this feeling pain of control, yeah. control set in yeah. and you've burrowed into a safe warm place in theory so it's kind of hopefully a slightly sad but brighter note on the end of the hypothermia yeah. Yeah. there's this collection of disney animated shorts and they did that story and yeah. it's like the most depressing animated yeah. clip that i've ever watched that's why i like how this story like if you when you read it it ends with no one imagined what beautiful things she had seen and how happily she had gone with her grandmother into the bright new year like oh. It's kind of, death is sad, but not necessarily for everybody. Well, that story actually kind of ties into the one that I had. At 8.30 p.m. on March 16th, 2018, a homeless woman was walking through the parking lot outside of a CVS pharmacy in Orange County when she noticed a strange smell coming from a parked white van. The police were called to check out the van, and they noticed that the van's windows were covered with blankets and a sunscreen. Upon opening the van, they found the decomposing bodies of a man who appeared to be in his late 30s or early 40s, a woman who appeared to be in her 20s, a boy who was about nine months old, and a girl who was around two years old. So the family appeared to have been sleeping in the van, and based on the amount of decomposition and other postmortem findings they were estimated to have been sitting in that parking lot dead for about three days okay and the family was eventually identified as fanyafon kanyavang michelle ha nikki ha kanyavang and mon tao kanyavang and they had been staying in their car for at least a month some of the sources i was looking at had different amounts of time that they had been staying there but they had been splitting their time living in their van between that CVS parking lot and a nearby school park. Okay. This death wasn't directly caused by hypothermia, but the van had been parked right next to a grassy median, and the police suspected that it had obstructed the exhaust system. Oh. So the family had been trying to stay warm in the car by having the car on during the night. Yep. Their exhaust was blocked, and... The police suspected that it was um, a lethal carbon monoxide, lethal levels of carbon monoxide that actually led to their deaths. But I wanted to highlight this. Did they do an autopsy? Uh, they, I, they did. They were waiting for the toxicology results to come back in all of the articles I looked at, and there were oh, no okay. follow-up stories. Okay. So I don't know in the end if it was actually carbon monoxide or if this family did die from exposure okay. related. 
conditions. Yeah. So I wanted to highlight this story because some of the things that we talked about earlier for dying due to either hyper or hypothermia are having lower socioeconomic status. Definitely. So being homeless is a huge risk factor for developing, for dying due to temperature-related causes. And according to the National Coalition for Homelessness, 700 people experiencing or at risk of homelessness are killed from hypothermia annually in the United States. And I didn't know this, but 33% of people that are homeless are families with children. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it was high. I didn't know it was that high. Yeah. Crazy high. But I just wanted to point out this story because even though hypothermia wasn't the exact cause of death, it was trying to stay warm in an unsafe environment that led this family to their demise. And another thing that I found, which I didn't know existed, is that there's actually a National Homeless Persons Memorial Day that takes place every December 21st. And it's to honor those who have died because they did not have shelter. And so, like, the little matchstick girl who didn't have the appropriate resources to survive, this family didn't have the appropriate resources to survive. And there are resources out there, but there's definitely a shortage of resources for people. 100%. So just another sad story about not being able to get shelter when you need it. There are no happy stories here, as one (laughs) of the medical examiners that we work with always says. I guess there's one happy story here, like in the present moment, and that is baby baby Cole having found her forever home. She, like, right now really wants to cuddle, but also really wants to play. And she's having this internal struggle between, do I curl up and sleep or do I play? (laughs) Cole will always have a home here. Well, maybe not this house, but somewhere with me. Yeah. Adopt pets. Spay and neuter them. And don't leave them in cars. Don't leave them in cars. <laughs> so she Touch me. So on that note, if you liked this or any of our other episodes, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe so that our podcast gets boosted up and other people can find us. You can visit our website at deadmendotelpodcast.com where we link to all our resources and our episode guide. On Twitter, we're at deadmendo. At Insta, we're at the Dead Tale Tales. And our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. Of course, if you ever have any questions or corrections, you can send us an email through the website or directly to thedeadtelltales at gmail.com. Speaking of which, I was reading something the other day, and in poppy seeds, that other chemical you can identify is the bane. The bane? Yeah, I think I said thiamine. Oh, you said which thiamine, is a vi- which is why I was yeah. confused. No, it's because remember we said, like, oh, we can take thiamine. And, like, try to hide from that. Apparently not. <laughs> no, it's... Take the bane and hide from The that. bane. And then our introductory music is Introducing Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevere, who you can find on SoundCloud. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, our next episode is going to be released the day before Halloween. Yes, yeah, so, so we have we're a gonna very have a fun special topic. episode that we won't spoil, but it should be a lot of fun. For, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it'll have a lot to do with Cole, the little black kitty. Yeah. Huh. You can star <laughs> the next episode. Don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah thank you everybody thank you